It's good to be back. We missed being here. Thanks to y'all for, for being here and to Scott for some wonderful teaching. When uh, You've got to get your brain back into ethics because this is our third lesson and you've had three weeks off if you count the week we didn't have class on the 4th of July or 3rd of 5th of July, whichever it was. So you've got to get it back into gear with where we were. So we're going to do that, but I'm going to start out by telling you about my 8th grade science adventure. In eighth grade, it was the first time I really got a chance to work with a microscope, and I thought it was really cool. They have those knobs that I've put the circle around. Those are called the objective lenses, we learned, because they're the lenses down near the object. You have another lens up here at the eye. But those are the ones, and they, they had three or four, I don't remember, down at the bottom of the microscopes we had. And you, you, some of them were short, and they were low power, and some of them were tall, and they were high power. And the, prof the, the professor, huh, not in Lubbock in eighth grade, the teacher, <laughs> the wonderful teacher, had us each take a hair out of our head and we put it on a slide and we put it under the microscope, under the, the lowest magnification. And we looked at the hair and I thought it was really cool to do it. And then when the teacher wasn't looking, I went ahead and I flipped the old knobs around because I wanted to see it on the highest magnification. And when I did that, you just saw nothing. So I quickly went back and continued to examine it the way he said. Now, I don't remember much else about that science class, and I don't remember much else about the microscope, and I don't remember much else that's useful at all. But that memory stuck in my head because it taught me something about life. It taught me that how far you are from an object makes a difference in how you see it. And things that are right in front of you can be out of focus and out of perspective. And sometimes you need to take a step back to really see and understand what it is you're looking at. And that's a true lesson. It's true with art. There are some paintings that if you stand right up next to them and look at them, it just looks like nothing. But if you step back in a distance, all of a sudden the, the painting takes on a meaning and a life that's, that's not otherwise apparent. And I think that's true also with some ethics issues and concepts that we've been talking about in here. So what I want to do is open up uh, uh, our file cabinet and go back and do a review of lessons one and two briefly to make sure we're all on the same page as we look at what we have to talk about today. If we pulled out our folders that kept our lessons and we had Paul's lessons uh, from part one and part two, part one we began, we talked about the word ethics that it comes from the Greek word ethos, and the, the word morals comes from the Latin word mos. And both the Greek and the Latin roots that give us our words ethics and morals mean the same thing. The roots mean what's your habit, what is your custom, what's your, your, what are your manners. Those are what the original words meant. Now, as we've developed in, into English over time, ethics means what are your good habits, good customs, good manners. And if we want to talk about bad ones, we add un in front of it. That's what's unethical. Or for morals, that's what's immoral. And that's the way we've got the words today. But when we talk about ethics, we're talking about morality. We're talking about right and wrong. And how do you decide what's right? And how do you decide what's wrong? It's a decision we all make every day. It's a decision we make when we greet someone. It's a decision we make when we decide what to eat. It's a decision we make when we decide uh, how to act or how to behave. It's a decision we make 
all the time. What's right and what's wrong? And that's the core of our discussion. Most of us, because this is a church, and it's a church that, that's, that's a strong Bible teaching and Bible believing church, and this is a class that finds its roots in Genesis and the idea that we need to be serious students of, of the, the Bible, it might be easy for us to just say, well, ethics, right and wrong, we just read the Bible and it's there. And that's an okay thing to say, but it's, it, it needs to be deeper than that. We need to take it a little deeper. Because if we're serious students of the Bible, we have already uncovered in these earlier lessons, there are problems saying simply, I'm just going to find out from the Bible. Because you can read in the Bible things that seem right to us, ethics, morality, behaviors that seem right. For example, Deuteronomy 6.5 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That seems right, doesn't it? That seems very moral. That seems very ethical. But some of them just don't seem so right. You can go back to Joshua chapter 8. And God tells the Israelites to kill every man, woman, and child in Ai. And somewhere in there, we just sit there and think, that's not really where we want to start our discussion of ethics from. <laughs> well, I have a solution for Ai. I, that's the kind of thing that makes you change the name of your town. Use consonants instead of vowels, bdud, instead of ai. You know. And so we, we considered this and we asked some hard questions. In those earlier lessons, we asked, did God change? Was God in a different mood or a different person when he said kill all at ai as opposed to turn the other cheek? Jesus says, turn the other cheek. What happened? Which, would, did, was there a change? Or maybe it was this. Maybe right and wrong changed with the New Testament. Because the Old Testament, God said to Moses in the law, keep your oaths. But in the New Testament, Jesus says don't take an oath. So may, maybe did right and wrong change? What used to be right is not right anymore. And, and now right is something different. So if we're going to go to the Bible, we just go to the New Testament and we discharge the Old Testament. Or maybe we just discharge the Old Testament where we find it inconsistent with the New Testament. But that doesn't work either. Because there are things in the Old Testament that we are taught that in the New Testament it doesn't make any reference to and we choose to live by the Old Testament because we know it's right. So we can't just write it off. So we ask the question, maybe it's culture. Does culture enter into right and wrong? Because we'll read Paul, right, that, that women aren't to braid their hair. They're not to wear pearls. They're to dress modestly. I'm looking for anybody with their hair braided. Bill Young. No. Uh, I don't see anybody with their hair braided. You may have it braided. If so, don't, don't leave. Oh. Lorraine, Lorraine, Lorraine. Don't leave. 
Don't leave. I think you're fine. If not, we're going to have a prayer service for Lorraine afterwards <laughs> right down here. Well, how do we decide right and wrong? You know, let's shift gears for a minute. If you took a class in ethics, and people in ethics were going to teach you different approaches, we could put it like on a, on a continuum. Let's see. There is an ethical approach that says there are absolutes. These are rights and wrongs that are... Here, we'll make them. These are black and white. I mean, there's no distinguishing the two. It's, it, there's no gray. There's no fuzz. Everything is absolute. It's always wrong to give a falsehood. Everything should always be accurate and true. Let's see if I can make that bigger. And then at the other end of the spectrum, is that... At the other end of the spectrum, we have um, what we would call uh, relativism. We could call it... Uh, uh, we'll, we'll just write it as relative. But it's the idea that things change. Right and wrong change. It's What's right and wrong is based maybe on how you... Uh, let me get something. Let's do it with this. Right and wrong is based maybe on how you feel. I just don't feel right about that. That's okay, I'm going to do this. It may seem wrong, but, but it feels right to me. You know, it's the Stephen Colbert. I go on my gut. You know, I, I, I heard him one time. He said, uh, uh, your gut is right more times than your mind because 85% of the nerve endings are in your gut. He says, now you may be challenging me on that. You may be saying, Stephen, how do you know that? I've read it differently in books. He says, that doesn't matter. That's your mind talking. I know it because I feel it in my gut. <laughs> I mean, is that what it is? It's just, what do you feel? That's right and wrong. How about what you want? I really, really, really want this. Can it be so bad? How about what 51% of the people agree to? We believe in democracy. What's right and wrong is decided by most people. Is it, what about our culture? Does our culture decide what's right and wrong? Well, these are the questions. How do we decide right and wrong? What's that decision based on? Is, is it, are there absolutes? Can we truly say that there is an absolute right? And there is an absolute wrong, and it is pure, and it is real? Or are we in the camp that says, no, 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 there's nothing absolute. It all depends on the circumstance and the situation. We discussed this in the last classes. And my suggestion to you, the biblical answer, I believe, is that there are absolute rights and wrongs that find themselves in the character of God and who He is. And yet... In the world in which we live, those absolutes are not always apparent. It's not the kind of thing where you've always got the same absolutes. Time and culture do make a difference. What is polite in, in a, an Eastern culture when you greet someone may be different than what's polite in a, 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 a Western culture. Yet as Christians, we're called to be polite to people. Well, then our behavior clearly is going to be different in one culture than it will in another. 
You know, you may be saying, well, that's such a small trifling example. That's okay. I chose a trifling one so you couldn't argue with me over it. Because it's a legitimate way of understanding that time and culture will make a difference. See, I think what Paul was saying to the women, Lorraine, you'll be glad to know, is to dress modestly, not in ways that hold you out to be a tramp. And back in the day in which he wrote, marks of trampiness included pearls and braided hair. Well, they don't mean that today. But we have marks of trampiness too. And I think it's safe for us to assume that the concept Paul was teaching is still a very valid concept. I have four daughters. I'm proud they don't traipse around trampoly. <laughs> and if they were to ever do so, doesn't matter how old they are, their father would say, please, 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 please. Because the concept is still valid. See, that's that microscope focus. Don't get so caught up staring at it through the wrong lens. If you step back, you see a consistent concept that still works. So I believe there are absolutes, but the absolutes are not always apparent. Not only do they vary because of culture and time, but the absolutes also vary because we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that's under a curse. And so the pure best is not always available in our world. There are times where you have to choose between the lesser of two evils. We looked at biblical examples of Rahab the harlot lying to the king of Jericho about where the Jewish spies were to save their lives. Or the, the midwives, you'll recall, we covered from Exodus 1, who lied to Pharaoh about the birth of the boys, that, the Jewish boys that the midwives were supposed to be killing. You know, th there are times where in the fallen world, the purest, best, God's absolute is not an available option. And so we're trying to figure out what God would have us do. Those are very difficult struggles. I've had some people email me with some of those. I remember an episode of MASH where Hawkeye was having to decide whether or not he was going to save the life of this one guy in a way that was going to take probably six, seven, eight hours of surgery at the expense of maybe three or four other people who might die. Or would he leave the guy alone that needed the six or seven hours of surgery and save the three lives that were going to be lost because he could save each of them in an hour, hour and a half apiece? And people, generals with armies, have to make choices about troops and which ones to send and which ones not to send. Those decisions in God's pure world would not have to be made. But we live in a fallen world that calls upon us sometimes to make the best of a bad situation. And this is not just something that I've come up with. This is something Jesus taught. Jesus was approached by the Pharisees and they said, Hey, are you easy on divorce or light on divorce? And Jesus' response was, Hey, didn't you read in Genesis when God made man and woman? He made them to be one and what God's joined together, let no man pull asunder. And the Pharisees said, well, yeah, well, if that's true, then why'd Moses allow people to divorce? And Jesus's response when they asked that question was because of the hardness of your hearts. It was never God's will. It's something God set up boundaries around because of the fallen world and the way it was going to be. 
But it's not what God's design was. It's making the best of a bad situation. So I'm convinced that God has an... uh, Oh, bad animation. God has an unchanging morality and ethic. God is constant. He is who He is. Right is right. Wrong is wrong. And that's just the way it is. And that's our measuring stick. If you want to know, and I want to know what's right and wrong, we look at God because whatever God is and whatever God would do is right. Whatever God is not and God would not do is wrong. I have a basis for defining right and wrong. It's not based on how I feel. It's not based on 51%. It's not based on the counsel of my friends. It's not based on what I want. It's based on an objective God. Now, my job then is to try and understand where that objective God would land in the middle of my quandary. Because the objective God is right and wrong. There is this. So, for example, I look at the Old Testament concern of the people being killed at Ai versus Jesus saying, turn the other cheek. Is there a conflict here? Not really. It's just you got to look through the right lens of the microscope. Here's what we learn from these two passages. One ethical thing is clear. God is in charge of deciding when men live or die. We don't take people's lives because we don't make those decisions outside of God's instructions because God is the one who decides. So these aren't two inconsistent ideas. God says kill all at AI. It was time for all of them to die in God's plan and scheme for reasons that are beyond my understanding. But Jesus has made it clear we're to treat each other with compassion and love because it is God's decision when people die. I'd be very wary, by the way, of someone who says... Uh, I killed so-and-so because God told me to. He doesn't seem to be doing that right now. But if perchance we had been there with Joshua at Ai and God had made it abundantly clear that's what we were to do, then that's what we do. Because it's God's decision. There's no change here. God decides when man dies. If I had that decision, I can give you a list of people today who would still be alive. God has an unchanging morality. He has an unchanging ethic. But in our fallen world, the pure right and wrong often don't have a perfect expression. If you had been hiding Anne Frank, would you have turned her over? Would you have deceived the Nazis who knocked at your door? Would you have said, yeah, we've got this little Jewish girl up in the attic. You don't have a good choice there. Now, some people say, yes, you pray that God will blind the eyes and stop up the ears of the Nazis, and I certainly believe God could do that. But I'm going to readily confess to you, if I'd been in that situation, I pray that I would have the strength and fortitude and self-sacrifice to recognize the lesser of the two evils is probably to say to the German, no. And I I mean, it's hard for me to say that. It's hard for me mainly because we don't often hit those huge life circumstances. Generally, what we're looking for is a bailout. We're looking for an excuse to do things that make it easier on us. 
when God's ethics generally tend to make it harder on us. So, I go back to the slide. God has an unchanging morality and ethic. But we'll also see God's expression of it changes as history unfolds, as culture unfolds, as technology unfolds. God's expression of right and wrong. Where's my example? Ham sandwich. You go back to Moses and you don't eat that. But God made it clear to Peter, it's okay to eat it. Why the change? Is it because technology had advanced and they knew how to bleed pigs without getting trichinosis? Was it because God was trying to teach Israel uh, an, an analogy lesson of the importance of what we consume, that there is clean food and there is unclean food, so that we would get it through our heads as my mom taught my daughters? When they, my daughters first wanted to start going to movies that were PG-13 and R, my mom made them brownies and wanted to put grass in it or something. No, not that kind of grass. Wanted, <laughs> wanted to put... <laughs> my mom, man. Woo! Um, wanted to put... You know, she said, what would happen if I made these brownies and I put some horrible ingredient in them? It would be terrible. You wouldn't want to ingest that in your body. You want to eat clean, pure food physically just as you do mentally and spiritually. Guard what you put into your mind. Guard what you put into your heart. Guard what you're exposed to. Is that why God had that for a time period? To teach those lessons in a spiritual analogy way? I don't know the reasons why, but I know that God has made it clear. And that the expression of God's character, it's not that there's something inherently unclean about the pig to eat if you treat it right. Now, that's our review. Let's talk Paul as we conclude the ethics. Were ethics for Paul a checklist? Was right and wrong a checklist? Was Paul able to say, hey, I've got a checklist here. You want to know what's right and wrong? Hang on. I'll look at it here. What you got there? That one? Okay, hold on. Hold on. Yeah, that, that's wrong. Can't do that one. Wait, wait, you got one? Okay, hang on. Now, did, was that the way Paul operated? Was he a checklist kind of guy with this stuff? Did Paul just uh, take the Old Testament, the Scriptures, and just work them like a checklist? Ah, let me check. No. Paul knew the Old Testament had a role in deciding right and wrong. But for Paul, the Old Testament was never his checklist for morality. Look at the closest Paul comes. is um, <clears throat> Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that the Old Testament is useful for teaching someone, for training someone, for reproving someone, for correcting someone. And it is. It serves that role. If we look, though, at what Paul says in Galatians, Paul says the Old Testament is your temporary guardian that leads you to Christ. Translated pedagogue as the, the guardian, the, the teacher, the one who taught you your manners if you were in Greek society, the one who took you to school so you could do your real learning. That's what the Old Testament was. But Paul says that was a temporary guide. It's gone now. So our question becomes, gee, if it's gone, does that mean whew, we don't have to follow any of that stuff? No, not really. 
Let me give you an analogy. Think about the Old Testament and think about driver's education. When I was a kid, I took driver's education. We had to to get your license at 16 in Texas. My children, three of them so far, have taken driver's education. And the things you learn in driver's education, they're important and they're good things and they're things. I'll tell you, if my kids did not pass driver's education, they could not get their license at the age of 16. They had to have a certificate of completion by the teacher. The teacher had to sign off on it. Now, that doesn't mean, though, once they passed and got the teacher to sign off and arrived and got that license, even though they're no longer under that teacher, it doesn't mean they disregard everything the teacher ever said. In fact, they've now got more to be worried about and concerned about as they figure out how to, to drive uh, uh, on their own. Somehow, another slide made it into my lesson. Um, Dale Hearn suggested that if you follow my driver's education class, all you get is pulled over. I took offense to that slide, but I haven't gotten it out yet. <laughs> if you think about the Old Testament law in this regard, think about the Old Testament as the driver's education professor. It brought you to Christ. See, the law, it's not a checklist. If you see it as a checklist, you're looking too finely. You need to step back and see that the law is an expression of who God is. And so the expression of who God is is something that, that, that's not simply a checklist. It's something that would lead you to Jesus. Why? Jesus is the ultimate expression of who God is because Jesus is God. God incarnate. So what does Paul have to say about all of this? Well, he says a lot. And at the risk of, of not having time to go through all of these, let me just throw a couple of them out here. In Galatians 2, Paul talks about... Hmm. We're going to do it differently. You can read the lesson. I'm going to do it briefly instead of show it to you. Galatians 2, Paul talks about how important culture is. Because Peter knew he could eat non-kosher foods and would in fact eat non-kosher foods until the kosher Jewish Christians came around. And then Peter would start acting like the Gentiles needed to eat kosher because Peter didn't want to upset the more strict Christian Jews. And Paul calls him down and says, you're a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. Don't go binding on these people in their culture and their time things that come from a different culture and time that don't need to be bound on them. How about when Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 says, to the Jew, I'd become like a Jew so that I could win Jews to Christ, but to the Greek, I'd be like a Greek. See, there are aspects of Paul's behavior that would change based on the culture. Now, what we've got to do is figure out what those are. Does that mean if Paul's in a culture of murderers, cannibals? Hey, pass the arm. By the way, I found out cannibals do not eat clowns because they taste funny. If Paul was in a culture of cannibals, you know, there, there, there are some things that Paul's going to have to say, I know God, and God would not do this. But God was not going to be hung up over a ham sandwich. 
You know, in Ephesians 1, when Paul's talking to the Ephesians, he doesn't pray that they'll memorize a checklist of right and wrong. He prays that God will give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, God, and the Lord Jesus. Because if you know God and you know Jesus, you know right and wrong. Or at least you're well on the way to it. Later on in the Ephesians letter, Paul says... Don't be sensual, don't be greedy, don't be impure. That's not the way you learned Christ. You see, it's who God is that's right and wrong. So he says, assuming you've heard about Christ, assuming you were taught in Him, because the truth, he says, the truth is in Jesus. And so you do all these things. You put away falsehood. You speak the truth with your neighbor. You don't be sinful in your anger. Don't give the opportunity to the devil. Don't steal. Do honest work. If you have something that someone needs, share it with them. Don't let corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Only what's good for building up. Don't be bitter. Don't be wrathful. Don't be angry. Don't clamor. Don't have slander. Be tender-hearted. Forgive each other. Be kind. And how does he sum it up? Be imitators of God. See, that's what we're after. You do like Jesus. You know, Paul's big ethical charge is to, to love. That's one of the biggest keys to right and wrong. Do what you're doing with, with a genuine caring about the other people. Do we have time for grammar in this lesson? No. That's okay. The grammar in your lesson was originally in a footnote labeled warning. This is for grammar nerds only. Someone convinced me to take it out of the footnote. So now you've got it in the text. Good luck. Now, as we get toward the close, does Paul give us a loophole? Have we now got, oh good, all I have to do is be like God. Now I can do all those things I really want to do that are wrong. It's about time my envy got set free. Oh, good, I really don't like that person, and I have been dying to gossip and slander about him. I have some really juicy news. I, are we free now to do it? We got a loophole because there's no checklist? Oh, no, that's the problem. Now it's worse. Now our charge is to be like God. This never, it's like when Jesus stood up and told ethics. He said, hey, you've heard it said you can't commit adultery. Well, you can't, but you're not supposed to be lusting either. That's not like a loophole. That's just made it harder. Oh, gee, you can't murder. Well, now you can't even hate. Wow. Um, one of the more fun things we did on vacation is we got to hear one of my favorite bands in concert, U2. And uh, uh, it's caused me to pull a snippet out of a U2 song. And I pulled a live performance where Bono's introducing this song to a Paris audience. So I want you to hear a seven-second introduction, and I want to ask you, do you recognize the song? This is... Bonsoir. This is a gospel song with a kind of restless spirit. This is a gospel song with kind of a restless spirit. And he starts the song. Anybody have a clue what it is? Yeah? 
the gospel song with the restless spirit because he's talking about what we're talking about. This is the mood you need to have. When you're trying to figure out right and wrong, you've got absolute forgiveness. Don't go hunting for right and wrong in some way that's going to give you a loophole because you feel you need to fix or, or excuse some past sin. There's no excusing sin. There's mercy and grace from God. And there's no shame in past sin if you've come to the cross because he's carried it. But when you're faced with right and wrong decisions and you, you're, you're looking for a loophole because you want to do something you know is wrong, you're already headed the wrong direction. The problem is we, we can have the freedom we have in Christ, but it's not a freedom for loopholes and sin. What it really is is the freedom to win ultimately in this struggle we have to be who God calls us to be. What God is trying to do is transform you into the image of His Son. And I had to shave this morning and look myself in the mirror. And do you know what I recognized? He's got a lot more work to do with me. And I suspect all you men and women shaving every morning in that mirror see the same thing. He's got a lot more work to do. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I am not, I have, Paul says it this way. I haven't reached it. But I press on toward the goal of the upward call of Christ. Because Paul knew that God was at work within him as he is within us to teach us right from wrong. Someone came up to me and said, um, oh, so-and-so is, is uh, 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 smoking. You need to speak against smoking. I don't need to speak against smoking. I mean, God's going to... I have a hard time understanding how anybody honestly thinks if they give their heart and life to God that God's not going to communicate to them what's right and wrong in some ways. And when God's ready to pull someone out of smoking, he'll, they'll wake up one day and realize, hey, I got to get some help. I got to figure out how to get out of this trap. It's not good for me. They don't need me to stand there and beat them over the head with it. You don't need me to stand up here and give you a checklist of what you need to do to be holy. What you need me to do is tell you you need to spend time with the Lord. You need to prayerfully spend time with the Lord. That means you need to be reading your Bibles daily because that's a clear revelation of Him. That means you need to spend time with your Christian brothers and sisters where you'll see a reflection, albeit ever so dimly sometimes, a reflection of who He is. Because we want to be like Him. He is at work within us to change us into a reflection of His likeness. He's bringing us back to purity in an impure, icky-mucky world. He's letting His light shine and removing the darkness. Hadn't found it all yet, but that's the direction we're headed. I hope that helps. So, points for home. One, be imitators of God. What would Jesus do? You know, it sounds trite. It was overly popular for a while. But I can't really improve on it. It's pretty good. Absolute right and wrong does exist. I may not be able to find how it's expressed in this circumstance. I may feel like I'm trying to dig out of a hole where there is no absolute right and wrong. I, but I want to know something. What would Jesus do in my situation? Because that's what you need to do. Love is the fulfilling of the law, Paul said in Romans. It's another way of seeing it. Jesus said the same thing. 
Not just love for yourself, not just love for your neighbor, but first and primarily love for God. And isn't that God's expression? The ultimate act of love was Jesus dying on the cross for us, right? You want to be like Christ? You want love to dictate how you live and how you die. And then if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. It's not a checklist. But it's something that we are called to do and it's something we were made to do. And it's something God is now empowering us to do. We're not doing it alone. So I wish I gave you a nice clear checklist. Here are 14,347 things to do. And you can follow this checklist and you'll be fine the rest of your life. I don't have that. I wish I could tell you, hey, go out and do whatever you want to do. It doesn't matter. I don't have that. What I've got is, yeah, it's a struggle, and yes, it's tough sometimes, but if you get yourself close to God and you keep trying to focus on Him and figure out what He will do and pray that through His Spirit you'll put aside your natural inclinations, you'll put aside your personal desires, you'll put aside those rationalizations that just brilliantly seem to cut forth in clarity to allow us to wallow in some particular sin we really want to, you'll set all of that stuff aside by the grace of God and focus on God, you'll know right from wrong. It's, 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 it, it will become clear. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray for, for all the folks who hear this message. I pray that uh, you'll, you'll bring home the truth that's in it. And if I've misstated things or got things wrong, that you'll just wash those out. Because, Lord, it's very important to, to all of us, to see you more clearly. It's very important to all of us to understand who you are and what you would have us do in this life. We want to be in your will. We want to walk your plan. We want you to see in us a reflection of Jesus. And we want the world to see that. So would you please help us? We pray these things through Jesus Christ. Amen.